Let's turn to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we live in a time where there's so much resources for us to be able to learn and grow in our relationship with you. And Lord, we pray that you'd use this right now media in our lives and in our church. And as we open up your word this morning, we've come to hear from you. We pray that you would remove distractions, that you would move us deeper into joy, that we'd find ourselves fortified in the joy of the Lord. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's very easy in my life to, to give myself a hall pass on joy, to really see it not as a, that big of a problem to not be joyful, to go through my days grumbling, complaining, just not in a very good mood. You know, if you lay out all of the things that are, are going wrong, it's easy to focus upon those things. But yet God offers to us the opportunity to have joy in him. And from a biblical perspective, Grumbling and complaining is a big problem. God says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. So I'm personally being challenged by the book of Philippians to have joy in the Lord, to enter into that fortification that comes through God, who God is. Joy is not based on our circumstances. Joy is based on the reality of who God is, whether things are going good or bad. What are some of the truths that we've seen so far in Philippians chapter 1. I hope you're studying along with me and can really read ahead. I would encourage you to read the book of th Philippians three or four times over the next uh, several weeks. We've learned that God is a good starter and a great finisher, isn't he? That he's going to complete the good work that he has started in us. Last week we learned that even though our life gets thrown into the Vitamix, remember that? That it happens for the furtherance of the gospel. We can take joy in the fact that God has a master plan. This week, we're going to see joy and pain. The Apostle Paul is going to go autobiographical. He's going to describe for us how he has joy in the midst of being in prison. Even though he's in prison and writing to the church of Philippi, he's still experiencing joy in the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. So let's look at verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Encouraging the church of Philippi to pray for him. He believes in the power of prayer expressed in praying for the church, but also asking for prayer. It says your prayer is going to result in my deliverance and also the supply of the Spirit. It can be hard to ask for prayer, can't it? If you're going through a hard time, you're in your own prison, your own difficulty, to reach out to others and say, would you please pray for me? I really need it this week. I really need it in this season because I'm going through this immense trial. And Paul here has the humility to say, pray for me because I know it's going to result in deliverance. To me, this is one of the mysteries of the word of God is that God is sovereign. He does what he pleases, but yet he moves through the prayers of his people. So he's wanting us to pray. He's wanting us to ask that God would work in someone's life who's going through challenge. So if you know someone who is going through a hard time, pray for them. God hears your prayers. It's going to result in the supply of the Spirit in their lives. Maybe you have had the experience of going through a hard time and knowing that believers were praying for you, 
and you felt their prayers. You felt the supply of the Spirit because they were lifting you up in prayer. So verse 19 gives us a great picture of the reality of prayer. In verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that nothing I shall be ashamed. If you're taking notes, write this down, joy's expectation. The Apostle Paul experiencing joy, he says, I have an earnest expectation in hope. Right now is a season of expectation because of graduation. Many high school seniors graduating, eighth graders going in to ninth grade, college seniors graduating out of college. And with that comes a lot of expectations for your life, doesn't it? And sometimes those expectations aren't fulfilled. And sometimes those expectations are. But Paul, in the midst of his trial, he has a biblical expectation. And that is that he's not going to be ashamed. In essence, he's saying, this trial of being in prison is not going to be wasted. I know that God is going to work through it. And I'm not going to be bashful or apologize for the fact that I'm in prison for Christ's sake. As you read Paul's writings, you get a sense that there were some that forsook Paul because of his sufferings. That maybe even saw him being in prison as an indicator that God was not approving of Paul's life. And that school of thought is still around today. If you're going through hardship, then you must be doing something wrong. Sometimes that's the case, but not all the time. You know, sometimes you're going through hardship because you're doing the right thing. Amen? And so Paul says, look, I'm not going to be ashamed in my tribulation and in my difficulty. That's my expectation. You know, God's going to use this. And as we go through trial as well, don't be ashamed. Say, yeah, God's allowing this in my life. I know he's going to use it for his purposes and for, for his glory. The other part of his expectation, he says, but with all boldness as always, So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know if I'm going to be executed here in this prison or if I'm going to be delivered by life or death. But I do know, I do have the expectation that God's going to be magnified in my body. This was Paul's aim. This was his focus. Saying, well, if I die, I'm dying for the Lord. It's going to be a martyr's death. But if I live, I'm living for the Lord. He'd established in his heart and his mind that he was going to be surrendered to Christ and live for Christ. And this resulted in joy. Jesus told us that if we desire to have life, if we desire to come after him, that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. It's in surrender. It's coming to that point of saying, my existence is for the purpose of God being magnified, which blows my mind that we could cause God to be magnified in someone's perspective. Because here we are, we're sinful, we're small, and yet God wants to use us to where someone can experience Christ in a greater way. But God loves to use his children. He loves to use the body of Christ. Think about how you came to know Christ. Probably a believer invested in your life. God was magnified in your perspective because of them. Think about currently. So many times God uses believers to teach us about himself. And Paul's saying, this is my expectation. This is my joy. I'm not going to be ashamed of the trial. God's going to work in it. And I know that God's going to be magnified. Whether it's 
by life or by death, whatever the result is, I've surrendered to the Lord and he's going to be magnified in my body. In verse 21, it says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the book of Philippians, we have these great truths, these great verses to memorize, to underline, foundational, that provides the strong tower, the fortification for us. And Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's joy's mission. If we want to experience joy in our lives, we have to go to the source and that's for Jesus to be our life. If he's our life, that can't be taken away from us. A prison cannot take Jesus away from you. Cancer cannot take Jesus away from you. A loss of job can't take Jesus away from you. The shattering of a relationship, you still have Jesus. My life is Christ. He's our portion. He's our satisfaction. He's living water. He's the bread of life. He's the vine. He's the one who gives us joy. So Paul's saying, here I am. I'm in prison, but I have joy because my life is Jesus. But sometimes we put other things in that place, don't we? We get our priorities wrong. Where Christ is in our life, we're looking to a substitute, something else. In the Old Testament with the children of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2, God says to them that they'd committed two evils. Jeremiah 2 verse 13. The first is they forsook the Lord the fountain of living water. That was the first evil. They drifted, they walked away from God, they replaced the relationship of God with idols, and then they went out and dug wells, cisterns, broken cisterns. They went to substitutes, alternatives, in order to find joy and satisfaction. If you were to try to fill in the blank, for me to live is, be honest, what would it be? Is your passion, your attention, is it work? For me to live is work. I find identity, my purpose for existence is my job. Maybe it's for me to live is marriage. For me to live is family. For me to live is ministry. I long to serve God and be used by, by God. Maybe it's a hobby. For me to live is fish, fishing. Not to be a fish, but to go fishing. <laughs> For me to live is to work out. If we really want to know what our life is, ask somebody who's close to you. They'll be able to look a lot more clearly and go, that's what you're all about. You know, that's what you are, are living for. But allow your life to be Christ. Because that's where joy is. For us to really press into these truths, into the book of Philippians, this is where it's at. For me to live is Christ. The outline for the book of Philippians is Jesus, others, you, joy. Jesus has to come first. Chapter one is Jesus, for me to live is Christ. Chapter two, if you've read ahead, is others-centered, putting other people's needs before your own. But if Christ doesn't come first, we have no ability to put others' needs before ourselves. And then finally, you. I've got to put me at the last equation. That's chapters three and four. Jesus, others, and then you. Now what's interesting about my life being in Christ is sometimes Christ was my life 15 years ago or 15 months ago, but he hasn't been my life currently. It's kind of like this. I played a ton of basketball growing up as a kid. 
to where there would be a season there where you could almost describe my life as basketball. My life is basketball. Now, if I were to try to claim that today, I would be lying to you. I don't play basketball anymore. I go in the driveway and shoot some hoops with my kids, but man, I just don't. It's just not, it's not a part of my life. But I like to think of myself that way, right? In my mind, I'm still back there as that high school athlete. And sometimes that's the way it is in our relationship with the Lord. We think back to a time when we were in the Word. We think back to a time where we were passionate about worship, where we drew near to God in prayer, and we give ourselves that permission to go, yeah, my life is Christ. No, your life was Christ 10 years ago. My life was basketball 20 years ago. It's not now. See, this is an ongoing decision. Yes, it's a, it's a one-time decision back in time that continues through my life where I am choosing something as a priority today. I'm choosing something as a passion today. So how do we make Christ our life? Why, why would we want Christ to be our life? It's like what Peter said, the disciple, and he said, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. Only you, Jesus, can satisfy You're the only one that has unconditional love. You forgive me. You accept me. I'm the child of God, and it's his love. He first loved us that causes us to respond. Some practical ways of making Jesus our life is spend time in the word of God. It's really hard for someone to be your life if you don't spend time with them. Agreed? So God, I want to be with you in relationship in your word. Be with you in prayer. Walk with you in obedience. I want you to be my life. I'm choosing that today. And as our our life is Christ, then we have joy. He is our portion. The result then is death is our gain. Death is our gain if life is, if Christ is our life. Other belief systems do not have the promise of death being gain. Friday night, family movie night, we rented a movie called A Dog's Purpose. It was pretty good. It's entertaining and The whole premise of the movie, not to ruin it for you, but I'm going to ruin it for you, is this dog reincarnates. So the dog dies and then starts all over again as a puppy. And the dog's trying to figure out the meaning, meaning of life and what the whole purpose for it. So it got me thinking about reincarnation. And I was depressed. If reincarnation were true, that would be miserable. Could you imagine? Do you want to do this over again? You want to go through this whole thing and then die and be like, well, I get to come back as an infant. Hopefully do it better next time and learn from the things through the first life. Then there's even that pressure. If you don't do it well, you might come back in a lesser existence. Like maybe you will come back as a dog instead of a person. No thanks, right? That doesn't sound like death is game. How about for the atheist or the agnostic that says there is no God, there is no life after death, That the only thing is this existence, and then when you die, you're food for worms. That's miserable as well, isn't it? Death is not your gain. You better hold on to your life with everything inside of you because there's nothing after this. How about false religions? Whether it be Mormonism or Muslim or Jehovah's Witness, what are they all built upon? Works. Your performance How do you really know if you're saved if it's works-based? How do you know if you've done enough if it's not based upon Christ's work? You don't have the assurance that death is your gain. But in Christ, because we're saved by grace and he's defeated the grave, 
death is our graduation. We get to go home to be with the Lord. And Paul's saying, I'm in a good place right here in prison. Because if I live, I have Jesus. Jesus is my life. But if I die, it's my gain because I get to go home to be with the Lord. He's looking forward to heaven. In verse 22, but if I live on in this flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. He says, so if I continue to live in the flesh, it's going to result in fruit in, in your life. I don't think Paul's being arrogant. He's thinking like a parent. I have a, an intense desire to go home to be with the Lord. That would be wonderful. Graduation, talking about graduations and expectations, like, God, if you want to take me home, that would be wonderful. But I also have an intense desire to stay here on this earth, to walk with my kids, to see them grow up. I feel a responsibility to get them to adulthood. And then after that, I'd be a lot more at peace about going home to, to be with the Lord. Why? Because I want to see fruit in their lives. And that's what Paul's saying here, is he's saying, yeah, I want to go home to be with the Lord, but I also want to continue to be involved in your life, Church of Philippi, to see the fruit that God would bring. An important understanding at the end of verse 22 is he says, Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. Paul, in essence, is saying the choice is not up to me. I don't get to choose when my life ends. That's God's decision to make. We have to have that truth deep inside of our hearts. We know suicide's an epidemic in our culture, in our city. There may be times where you struggle with thoughts of suicide, and it may be this idea in your mind, well, heaven is so great, so why wouldn't I go ahead and end things so that I can go home to be with the Lord? And Paul's saying, it's not my choice. God's the author of life. He gave this life to me. I easily could have not come into existence. God fashioned me individually. He fashioned you. He died for us upon the cross. He has double ownership of us. Through creating us and dying for us, it's not for me to choose. It's not for me to take my life. It's to leave that in God's hands and say, God, as long as I'm here, it's for a purpose. It's to bring forth fruit in your kingdom. It's to love upon people. And this is expressed in verses 23 and 24, he says, For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. This is joy's tension. Joy's tension. Paul's saying, I'm hard-pressed between the reality of the intense desire to go home to be with the Lord and also this intense desire to stay here and be involved in your life to see you grow in Christ. In church, gang, brothers and sisters in Christ, I think that we need to have that tension in our lives as well. If I'm not thinking about the joy of heaven, if I'm not comforted in the fact that Jesus has prepared a place for me, that I'm going to see him and be like him, have a glorified body, I'm thinking too much about this life and not enough about eternal life. As believers, we should long and look forward to going to heaven. Jesus told us, don't let your hearts be troubled because you're a United States citizen. Do not let your hearts be troubled because Donald Trump is in office. Is that what he said? 
No, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled because I go to prepare a place for you. Heaven. I'm preparing heaven for you, man. So you can be comforted. Don't go through this life with a bummed out heart because you have heaven. So if you haven't thought about heaven for a long time, if you haven't longed for heaven, if you're not hard pressed and you're like, I just wish that this life would continue forever. I want to be 250 years old. You need to take a look at biblical heaven, you know? And I find when my heart starts to lose focus on heaven, a trial gets me there real quick, you know? When things get difficult here on earth, I'm like, oh, I'm looking forward to going to heaven. So we should have a healthy anticipation of heaven, but that doesn't cancel out a very strong desire to live. Paul's saying, yeah, I'm looking forward to heaven, but I also realize that this life is a gift and I want to be able to live it to the fullest. I want to bear fruit in people's lives. So this is the understanding. It's not that this life is bad. It's that heaven is better. So maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum. You're so longing to go to heaven that you've lost sight of the value of this life. Maybe you're considering killing yourself. Man, that doesn't, it's not what God wants for you. Cry out to the Lord and cry out to others. Don't believe the lie. That's not what God has in any way, shape, or form. Maybe you say, I wouldn't take my own life, but I'm, I'm just kind of sick of living. I'm numb. I'm just going to turn myself off like a switch. No, you've missed it. This life's a gift. It's wonderful. God wants to use you. He wants your life to bear fruit in others. That's joy's tension. Jesus, I can't wait to go home to be with you. But as long as I'm here, I'm going to live it to the fullest. As long as I'm here, I'm going to love Jesus. As long as I'm here, I'm going to love people. My life has, has purpose. And Paul didn't lose sight of that in prison. That'd be really easy to lose sight of that and just go, I'm going to unplug. I, I'm, I'm done. But instead he says, no, I'm looking forward to heaven, but I'm going to engage in what God has for me every day. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So Paul is sharing, I don't know for sure how this is going to turn out, but he also seems to be sharing in verse 25 and 26 that he has an insurance that he's going to get out of prison. God must have spoken to his heart and said, Paul, this is not going to be the end. So he shares that with the church of Philippi saying, I believe that I'm going to get out of prison. I believe that we're going to be reunited again. In verse 27, we have joy's exhortation. There's an there's a exhortation with joy. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word conduct, it means to live as citizens. So you're a citizen, live according to your citizenship. Philippi is a Roman colony. They understood citizenship. In the Roman Empire, there was two divisions. You're either a citizen or not. If you had citizenship, you had great privilege. And Paul's using that as a very personal illustration. And he says, you're citizens of heaven in chapter 3. You're citizens of the gospel, chapter 1. Now let your conduct, let your lifestyle be according to the gospel. When we receive the gospel, we trust Christ for salvation. That's not the last point that the gospel, Christ's sacrifice, impacts us. And why is this connected to joy? 
If we have a conduct that lines up with the gospel, why would it bring joy in our lives? Because holiness, wholeness, leads to abundant life. It says that Jesus was anointed with happiness more than all of his fellows because he hated wickedness and he loved righteousness. Have you ever been in a place of regret because of righteousness in your life? Conduct worthy of the gospel? No. But we experience pain, remorse, regret, guilt when we walk in sin. And so Paul's saying you want a joyful life? Have conduct that's worthy of the gospel. So let's talk for a few moments. What would that look like? What is conduct worthy of the gospel look like? First, I think it's allowing the gospel to form our identity. To know that because of grace, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm the son of God. I'm the child of God. I'm forgiven. I'm accepted. I'm loved. That every step that I take is in the gospel, that my feet are shod with salvation. That's important to know, isn't it? And that affects us. John, the disciple in his gospel, he never records his name. He just says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's living in the gospel. That's conduct worthy of the gospel. We're constantly receiving his grace and acceptance. Then when we think of conduct, we often focus on the things that we're not supposed to do. But I want you to think in the positive, what's some conduct that's worthy of the gospel? What's some things that we ought to be doing that lines up with the gospel? Loving people. Get your hands on them. Love them. Give them a hug. Smile. Look them in the eyes. Let them know it's great to see you. Listen to them. That's conduct that's worthy of the gospel. Share with them who who Jesus is. Take time for them. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? That sounds like a joy to be able to do. Extend the forgiveness that we've received. That is conduct that is worthy of the gospel. I love mercy in my life and like judgment in your life. (laughs) Isn't that the reality of our wicked flesh? God, thanks for forgiving me. But yeah, I'm so quick to not extend that grace and the forgiveness to others. And then, of course, there is the reality of there's things that I ought not to be doing because it doesn't line up with the gospel. You know, this sin, this attitude, it doesn't line up with the conduct that God is calling me to. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for faith of the gospel seems to be a temptation for the Church of Philippi and for all of us to behave one way when we're in the presence of a spiritual leader or mentor. I got to be honest with you, man. If the Apostle Paul was coming over to my house after church today, the 11 o'clock service, I would be so nervous because I look up to the Apostle Paul and I would not want to look like a buffoon before the Apostle Paul, right? I would want to be on my best behavior, because Paul is, is in my house. And Paul's writing the church and he says, you know what? Whether I'm there or I'm absent, I want you to conduct yourself worthy of the gospel. Because you're doing it for Jesus, not because you're doing it for me. I remember growing up, my brother and I, he's 22 months older than me and my sister's nine years younger. My parents would leave my brother and I home alone sometimes. 
11, 13 years old. And there were two sets of behavior. One set of behavior when my parents were home and another set of behavior when they were gone. They were very different. My dad had taught us how to drive at a young age. We lived in a small town in southern Oregon and we went hunting a lot. So he says, boys, if an accident happens out here in the woods, you, you need to know how to drive out of the woods. So, well, what do you think happened knowing how to drive as an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, and your parents leave you home? Let's try this out, right? My dad had this big, old 70s yellow van, like 12-passenger van. Bought it from my uncle who lived in the Midwest, and it was rusted out in between the driver's seat and the passenger seat took a big piece of plywood and just screwed it down. So where did we start? It was parked on the side of the house with pea gravel, and we would go a few feet. And we figured out if you put on the brake and the, and the gas at the same time, some pretty cool things happened with the pea gravel, you know. Start digging holes in the pea gravel and cover those up before mom and dad. But two boys, are you going to just be content with a few feet? There's asphalt out there. There's pavement. It's time to take this baby on the road. So here we are, driving this big van, barely seeing over the steering wheel and reaching the pedals in our little hometown. Thankfully, we stayed in the neighborhood. And that didn't happen just once or twice. I mean, countless times. Mom and dad are gone. They've been gone like 15 minutes or half hour. If you leave your kids home alone at home, you might want to come back unexpectedly sometimes. Like, just give it like 30 minutes, and then you're supposed to be gone like two hours. Just come back and really see what's, what's going on, right? So inevitably, a neighbor saw us. I mean, how disheartening to see two 11 and 13-year-old boys driving a van in your neighborhood. So they told my parents, and that was the end of that, right? Because we had two different sets of, of behavior. Now, all of us have two different sets of behavior. There's a way that we act here. There's things we wouldn't say here. There's things we wouldn't look at here. There's things we wouldn't watch just things we wouldn't do. Why? Because we're, we're in the house of God. And God wants to merge those two things together to where there's one set of behavior. That my behavior is not based upon the fact that I'm around other believers, but my behavior is based on the fact that I'm with Jesus. Jesus is always with me. He, he sees, he knows. And when we fall short, because we will, to be open with him and to be open with others, to not feel like we have to pretend with each other as believers and say, here it is. But this is the challenge. This is the exhortation that God is saying. It is don't just behave one way because we're in the presence of an Apostle Paul-like figure, but make it part of our lives all the time. What he confronts the church of Philippi about is their unity, that they stand fast in one spirit. As we'll continue to study in this epistle there's division that's happening. There's two ladies that are fighting and it's affecting the church. And Paul's saying, let the gospel affect your relationship. You're in one spirit. You have one mind. Work together, strive together for the faith of the gospel. We're on the same team. We wear the same jersey. It's the body of Christ. Our church family, but then all who are believers to realizing it's not an individual effort, but we're walking together in unity. We're walking together partnering in the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversary Paul's concerned that the church of Philippi would back 
away, shrink back from following Christ because there is opposition to the gospel. Because Paul is in prison and the encouragement is don't be afraid of the adversary. Don't be afraid of Satan and those that would want to come against the gospel as we continue to live in a culture that's not friendly to Christianity, not friendly to Christ's followers, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the adversary. May we not shrink back, but may we press in to loving Christ and and to loving others. That's the message that comes from God's word, which is to them a proof of perdition. So those that were persecuting the church and coming against the apostle Paul, it's proof that they were on the road to destruction. That's what perdition means, destruction. So if you have someone in your life that's coming against you because of Christ, it's evidence of where their heart is at. But it also shows where you're at. It says, but to you of salvation and that from God. So if you're getting resistance because you're in Christ, it's proof of the fact that you're God's child. It's proof of the fact that you're on Christ's team, that Christ has adopted you. Verse 29, for to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Man, the first part of that is so good. It's been granted to you to believe. God chose you. He moved in your life to get you to that place to surrender to Christ. But then also it's been granted to you to suffer. There must have been some at the church of Philippi that are saying, you know what? I don't want to follow Christ like the apostle Paul. I don't know if I want Christ to be my life to the point where I'm going to be persecuted for it. The interesting thing about the difficulties in Paul's life, if they, they would get easier if he would just stop telling people about Jesus. He just would quit being one of those Jesus freaks. He'd quit getting beat up and thrown in prison. But Paul's saying, no, it's, it's worth it. I'm not going to be ashamed. And then he's encouraging the church saying, don't back off, but press in. I mean, how would we really respond if there was this kind of persecution? Would we back off or would we press in? Would we go, okay, it's been granted to me to believe, but also to suffer. That's part of salvation, is suffering in order that Christ would be glorified. And he encourages the church to enter into the conflict. He says, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. What was this conflict? Being persecuted, being in prison, saying, I want you to enter into that conflict. I want you to be in that same place of of challenge. It's worth it. It's worthwhile. So church, can there really be joy and pain? I mean, don't we just have a right to go through our days grumbling and complaining? Murmur, 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 murmur. Does God really want us to be joyful? Should that be the attitude of of believers? Haven't you found that sometimes believers can be the most miserable people on the planet? Right? We really don't have joy. Can be cynical and complain and yeah. Could we have joy in pain? Could we have joy in the midst of our trial and difficulty? Could we choose praise? Could we choose thanksgiving? Yes. Because we know that whatever the result, God's going to be magnified. Have we come to that place where we say, I'm taking my hands off of the result. God, I would sure love deliverance, but if you don't choose deliverance, if you choose death, I know that you're going to be magnified. You can find churches that will tell you, 
If you believe Christ and follow him, everything's going to go perfect in your life and you're going to have a hallmark ending. That you're guaranteed a hallmark ending in your life and the, the, you, you will not have difficulty. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible shares with us. The Bible tells us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That we're walking in, in his steps. So we can come to a place where we say, okay, God, I get it. I understand. It's not always going to be easy. And I take my hands off the results, but I know my expectation is you're going to be magnified. And that's hard. I bet that there's some today where you're right at that crossroads, where you're in a trial, and the Lord's saying, trust me. Take your hands off the results. Know that I'm going to be magnified, whether by life or by death. Can we have joy and pain? Yes, knowing that Christ is our life. He's, he's our life. So he can't be taken away from me. He's going to continue to be that source of living water. Can we have joy and pain? Yes, because to die is our gain. Eternity is real. Heaven is real. Thankfully, reincarnation is a lie. <laughs> I don't have to do this all over again. This is the worst that it's ever going to get. And eternity is real. Heaven is real. As we end this service, we're going to take communion together. There's elements in the back and also elements here in the front. And it's one thing to talk about joy and talk about Christ, and it's another to draw near to him, to taste and see that he is good. In communion, we're instructed to remember. Do this in remembrance of me. We're really busy as Americans. I'm sure you've had a really busy week and you've got a busy afternoon. And the tendency is just to see communion as something to do, a box to check, and head out into our day. And maybe even look at our clocks and, no, be still. Take time. The worship team's going to come. Come, receive of the elements. Go back to your seat and sit and remember. Jesus, I remember that you were broken for me. I remember that your blood was shed for me. I thank you so much that my identity is in the gospel. Remember, we're also instructed to look within, to examine ourselves as we take communion. As we're examining ourselves, it's really trash day of the soul. You probably have trash day where you get all the trash, take it out to the curb, wait for the trash man to come. And we need to look at our hearts and go, God, where's my heart? Where do I need to confess sin? To receive forgiveness, to be right with you. 1 John 1, 9 is for believers. It says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We're not confessing to be saved again. We're confessing for relationship. Hopefully in your family, when you sin, you're not kicked out. Like, oh, you're, you're not a Cartier anymore. You blew it. Out with you. No, hopefully that's not the case. You sin against someone in your family, you're still in the family. But the relationship may be a little bit weird. The relationship might be a little bit broken until you come to that place and saying, you know, would you forgive me? I was wrong for acting that way. And that's the way it is with God. He doesn't kick us out. You're no longer his son or his daughter. But there may be a distance between us and the Lord. And as we take communion to stop and say, Lord, would you forgive me? Allow the Holy Spirit to search us and reveal those things. And he'll be faithful to forgive. And then also in communion is this expectation of heaven.
We proclaim his death till he comes. We lift the communion cup. Go, Jesus, thank you so much that this life is not all there is. I'm looking forward to being home with you. Help me be faithful with the days that I have. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, we want to give you an opportunity to trust Christ for salvation, to trust the gospel. As sinners, how do we come in right relationship with God to believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, repenting, turning from our sin, saying, Jesus, save me, be the Lord of my life. And down here on the side, where it's a little bit quieter, it's going to be a ministry team that's ready to pray with you and introduce you to Christ, for you to receive Christ as your Savior. And then we would love for you to enter in and have communion with us as well. Jesus wants to meet with you. He's here. He wants to speak to you. I know for some, maybe you've been disconnected this whole service. Worship has come and gone. The teaching has come and gone. And you're somewhere else, either because you're disinterested or because you're overwhelmed, but your heart and mind is somewhere else. Maybe it is that church has just become a tradition. It's just what I do on Sunday morning. I feel obligated to be here. But Jesus is here because he wants to be in relationship with you. It's one thing to read his word. It's another thing to draw near to him. Let him speak to you. Let him speak to you through communion. Meet him in that place. He gives us his promise. He says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. So let's do that right now in communion. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, as we take communion, as we celebrate communion, we do want to draw near to you. We pray that you would remove distractions, that you would remove a lack of interest, a lack of faith. We believe that you're here. We believe that you want to meet with us. Maybe a special time of remembering. Maybe a special time of confessing. And maybe a special time of looking forward to eternal life. So Lord, we quiet ourselves before you. We draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen.